You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Daniel 10 offers us a mysterious, unique glimpse into the unseen realm. And how what happens in that unseen realm affects the world that we live in. Human beings are not the only cause and effect of everything that happens in our world. There's a whole other dimension. And creatures in that dimension that have a significant impact on our lives, on the church, and on the nations of the world. And being aware of that can be very helpful in living our lives in a way that's pleasing to God and victorious over Satan. Now, chapter 10 is the introduction or the prelude to chapters 11 and 12, which contain the final vision of Daniel. And uh, the first nine verses or so of this prelude in chapter 10 appear to be, and you'll see this, an open-eye vision. In previous visions, Daniel is asleep or in a dream or a trance. In this vision, his eyes are wide open. He's looking out over the Tigris River. We call that an open eye vision. He is literally seeing into the unseen realm. The remainder of the chapter, verses 10 and following, is about his interaction with a supernatural being who enables him to to withstand the intensity of this vision and also help him understand what the, the vision reveals, namely what will happen to Daniel's people in the future. And it all centers around a war. So we're going to spend a couple weeks looking at this. I'm not going to try and bite it off in one Sunday. You'll be glad. But what I want to do is I want to look at it uh, from first a global perspective. I want to look at how the events that happen in the unseen realm affect what happens in our world. And then secondly, from a personal perspective, I'd like to look at how the events and things that happen in the unseen realm, the unseen world, affect our personal lives, especially the uniqueness of the times in which we live right now, this last three or four years. So let's begin in verse 1. We're going to read through the chapter as a whole, then we'll come back with a general overview, and then we're going to do a deep dive. All right, in the third year, verse 1 says, of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who is called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it contained or concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, now Daniel starts talking, at that time I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips. I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from euphots around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me didn't see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. And so I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. And then I heard him speaking. 
And as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. In other words, woke him back up. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. And then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. And while he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and I was speechless. Then the one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord. And I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. And again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong, now be strong. And when he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And he said, and said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, do you know why I've come to you? Soon I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. All right. Wow. Okay, so what we want to do, let's do a, just a general, okay? In this passage, we have the Old Testament prophet Daniel. He's praying and fasting about the future of his people, right? A supernatural being that we assume is an angel is dispatched to him with the answer, but is obstructed for 21 days by another supernatural being called the Prince of Persia. Now, the angel with the message for Daniel finally gets some help from another high-ranking angel named Michael, which enables him to deliver the answer to Daniel's prayer. And then the angel says to him, after he's done communicating with Daniel, that he's going to face this angel, this being, is going to face even more spiritual warfare when he returns again to fight the prince of Persia, after which he will go into battle against the prince of Greece, and he will at that time be helped from Michael, the prince Michael, and because he's helped Michael before in apparently another battle. Wow. In this passage, we have four supernatural beings that are mentioned. Two of them are good. Two of them are bad. So let's look at those four before we go any further. The identity of the first one is unknown, but he's obviously good, and he's obviously very spectacular. We need to read it again. I looked up verse 5, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, eyes like flaming torches, arms and legs gleaming with burnished bronze, his voice like the sound of a multitude. 
Now that is an amazing being. In fact, that's very similar to a description of Jesus found over in Revelation chapter 1. And because, because of that, it's similar, it's not the same, it's similar, but because of that, some people have assumed that this being is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But it isn't. Why do you say that, Jeff? Well, because this unknown supernatural being was restrained by an evil prince, the evil prince of Persia for 21 days. And that would be absolutely impossible if this person was the son of God, Jesus Christ. The son of God cannot be restrained by anyone, let alone by a being that he himself created. Colossians 1.16, for in him, this is in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers, this is talking about spiritual rulers here, and authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So this first being here that we assume is an angel is a created being, but absolutely magnificent, high-ranking, very powerful. So the next thing we might assume then is, well, this must be either, you know, Michael or Gabriel, right? Well, no, it couldn't be Michael because he talks about Michael helping him, right? And it's also unlikely that it was Gabriel because Daniel didn't realize realize who it was. He didn't know who it was. And Daniel met Gabriel in chapter 7, and in the vision in chapter 8, he goes, there's Gabriel. He knew who Gabriel was. He doesn't recognize him. So it's not Michael. It's not Gabriel. It's not Jesus. This is an unknown, majestic, powerful, supernatural being. And he's so powerful that the men that were with Daniel at the river, although they uh, didn't see the vision, they felt something. And that something was so terrifying, they ran. The presence was so heavy that they ran and they hid themselves. And Daniel experienced the same thing. This being was so powerful that Daniel has to actually almost be resurrected three times just to be with this person and have a conversation with him. That's the first supernatural being. We'll come back. Second one <clears throat> is the prince of Persia who resists the first unknown supernatural being to the point where it takes 21 days to bring an answer to Daniel's prayer. So this guy's pretty powerful too, this prince of Persia. He's got to be pretty powerful to be able to risk this, to resist this first being 21 days. Now this is a bad guy. The first one's a good guy. This guy's a bad guy. He's formidable and apparently he has significant influence over the human king of Persia. He is the prince of Persia, and he has influence over the king of Persia. And you see that in verse 13. Look at it. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. In other words, I was detained. I was on assignment there. I had to stay there for a while because of something to deal with the King, not prince, two different words, king of Persia. So the king here is the natural king, that's Cyrus. The prince is the supernatural being that is over Persia, malevolent supernatural being. Now, what's going on here? Ezra 1 tells us that God moved on the heart of the Persian king Cyrus 
to release the Jews and then to build their temple for them. Now, this is a Persian kingdom. They hated the Jews. By the way, this is modern Iran. They hated the Jews. And so all of a sudden, you have this Persian king. He goes, you know, my, and it was like a great delight to him. I have this great delight. I have this desire. I'm going to send the Jews home, and I'm going to help them rebuild their temple. And then he goes, and he gets all the furnishings of the temple out of storage. Do you remember? Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, took them all out of the temple when they overran Jerusalem. Here we are 72 years later. Cyrus gets all of the, the temple, for all the gold, all the plates and the bowls and the lampstand and the table and all that stuff and gives it to the Jews and say, here, take it back and rebuild your temple. Now, only God could do that, and that's what Ezra says here. He even issued a decree. Why? Because the return of the Jews to their homeland and the rebuilding of the temple was necessary for God's plan to continue because out of that people in that land and at that temple would come a Savior for all people. The prince of Persia apparently knew that. And he was working to thwart this policy of Cyrus, which he did, by the way. He did thwart it for a season because the king that comes after Cyrus in Persia actually stops what Cyrus is doing. And then the next king reversed that back and the Jews continued to go home and they eventually rebuilt their temple and the walls of, of Jerusalem. Now, we can't really be sure just exactly all the dynamics of that, but we can see how political policies in nations and among nations are influenced by unseen powers. You have to see that here. There's a whole other realm that affects our world. And we're getting a little vision into it this morning in Daniel 10. We don't know now what happened to the prince of Persia. It's likely he is still over that geographical region, which today is Iran. And I, by the way, Iran is obviously the one who supplied Hamas with all the rockets, by the way, which we paid for. The world is so stupid. I'm just going to say it. The whole thing is. So that was too coordinated, you know that, for Hamas to do that. So it was Iran. So see, the prince of Persia, you know what he's doing this morning? He's working hard. He's still there. It's not often that we look in a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament and it's real time before us the same morning that was being preached. So, third supernatural being Michael, one of the chief princes, in verse 13. Again, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And so, Michael's not just a prince, a chief prince, which implies that he was of higher rank than a prince, perhaps even the prince of Persia or the prince of Greece, which was the fourth being here, the prince of Greece, mentioned in this passage. So what's, what's up with all these princes? It's an important question to answer. You know, and so we're going we're gonna to dig a little deeper today. That's just the intro, and here's why. Well, here's why we're going to do it. Although we believe, right, that there is an unseen supernatural world 
we often do not live like it. It's something over there. It's not present as much as it should be in our thinking. Or sometimes we even get erroneous ideas about it. I'm not going to talk about those that this morning, but the modern church, the Western church for the most part, is desensitized by its own rationalism. That if we can't see it, it must not be real or it must not be that important. And so we kind of shelve it. And what we don't realize is it affects the way that we look at Scripture. We begin to look at Scripture with more of a rational worldview instead of a supernatural worldview. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of help restore a little bit of that supernatural worldview. And to do that, we're going to have to go all the way back to the Tower of Babel. We started there in this series. After the flood, this is in Genesis 11. Let me just give you a, the synopsis here. After the flood... God, as he had in the beginning, told the people again to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The people of the earth did not do that. Instead of obeying God and having God be their God, the people gathered together in one place. They did not scatter. They gathered together in one place to build a tower, which in the ancient world, these are called ziggurats, and they're basically portals to worship the gods, where the gods come up and down on. I don't have time to get into that this morning, but that was the whole thing behind the tower. It was false worship. It wasn't just saying, we're going to make a name for ourselves, but they were also inviting other gods, and in, in that sense, they were rejecting the one and only true God, Yahweh. They shunned his plan to restore Eden through them. And so what did God do? He disinherited them. I'll explain that. Romans 1. It's kind of a Romans 1 thing. He gave them over. He gave them over to their own rebellion. He disinherited them. And then he started over chapter 12 with who? Abraham. And he formed a nation from Abraham that would become his inheritance. He disinherited the nations. Those were nations that came from Noah's three sons. There were 70 nations. You can find them in Genesis 10. Basically, we call that the table of nations. He disinherited them, chose Abraham, and would make the nation that came from Abraham, Israel, his inheritance. And from that nation, God would provide a way for the disinherited nations from Noah's lineage to be reconciled back to him through an offspring that would come from Abraham, an ultimate offspring, the seed of Abraham, none other than Jesus Christ. So he disinherits the nations, chooses to form a nation, through that nation goes back and begins to reconcile or does recon begins to reconcile those other nations in because through the death and the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ, Abraham's blessing, salvation by faith, now is available not just to the Jew, but to Jew and Gentile alike. And that's why Jesus says at the end of Matthew, we're to take this good news into all the disinherited nations in order to reconcile them back to God. So the Great Commission is the reversal of Babel. At Babel, what happened? Scatter. Judgment. Great commission. Another took that judgment. Go, on his behalf, reconcile them back in. The great commission is the reversal 
of Babel. Did you ever wonder why when Jesus sent out disciples, the first time he sent out 12 to the lost sheep of Israel, the second time he sent out 70? Where have I heard that number? 70 before. That takes you right back to Genesis 11, the 70 disinherited nations. What was he doing? He was making a mark, drawing a line in the sand. I've come to recapture the nations for my own glory. All right. Now, this disinheriting of the nations, this turning over at Babel, was a judgment. He prohibited them from rebuilding the tower or from finishing the tower. And he confused the languages so they would go spread over the earth. But he did more than that. And you can see it in Genesis 11, where he says this. And I'm not sure we have this on the screen, but he says, come let us go down and confuse their language. And then the next verse, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the face of the earth, over all the earth. Now notice that, if we can go back, notice something about this. Come let us go down. Next verse. So the Lord, so who did the scattering? The Lord. But somebody helped him do this scattering. It's mentioned in that verse, the us. Come let us. Who is the us? He has some others here helping him do the scattering. Other beings were involved. He said, let us go down and confuse their language. This isn't the Trinity. This is somebody else. So who is this? All right. The answer is found in Deuteronomy 32. And the best translation of this is from the ESV version, English Standard Version. The setting is Moses saying goodbye to his people. He's about to die. He's giving his farewell speech. And in the middle of that speech, he says in verse 7, what he's doing here is he's trying to remind them how important they are to, to God. He says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father. He will show you your elders and they will tell you. When the, now notice, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, when did he do that? Babel. We're talking about Babel here, right? He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, Israel, his allotted in his heritage or inheritance. So what these verses say is when the nations of the world were scattered at Ge in Genesis 11 at Babel, they were geographically partitioned according to supernatural beings called the sons of God. In other words, when the human race as a whole rejected God, he gave them over to live in certain geographical regions ruled by certain supernatural powers called the sons of God. In turn, he started over by forming a new people, a new nation, through Abraham in a new geographical region that eventually would be called Israel. And this is why the land of Israel is so battled over over all the centuries, because it is the land of God. There is a sacred space. This is where Jesus will return one day. So the Lord's portion was Israel. The sons of God portion was the disinherited 70 nations. So who are these sons of God then? that rule over the disinherited nations? Well, to answer that question, we're going back one more. <clears throat> Genesis 6. We did a deep dive on this passage in the first Peter series. That was number 19. I know some of you are going to want to go back and look at that. Message 19. And we touched on it in the first 
message in our current series. Comments are going to be brief here. This is wild stuff. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of these, them that they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120. I'm giving them 120 years, and it's done. The Nephilim, Hebrew word for that's giants, were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went, in, went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. Now, in the Old Testament, the phrase sons of God the Hebrew word, beni ha'alihim, nearly always refers to supernatural beings. Angels, many times. God's heavenly family. It's helpful if you think of as redeemed human beings as God's earthly family and the angels as God's heavenly family. God has two families. Now, obviously, these sons of God sinned when they left the bounds that God established for them, Jude 6 says, by marrying and mating with the daughters of men. The resultant offspring, it says here, were called the Nephilim, giants, heroes, men of renown. This is where most of Greek and Roman mythology comes from. Ironically, not in superstition, but in the reality of the Nephilim. They were kind of like godlike, huge giants. I know that's wild, so hold on. This satanically inspired sons of God, daughters of men, high-bred offspring corrupted the human race, both morally and genetically, to the point where God, several hundred years later, imprisoned those fallen sons of God. He imprisoned them, and that's found over in 1 Peter chapter 3 and 2 Peter 2. And then he destroyed the Nephilim-corrupted humanity through the flood and started over again with eight human beings, Noah and his family. And this explains the severity of the flood. Have you ever wondered, God, wasn't the flood a little bit over the top? You could have, you've judged many other times, why destroy everything and start over? That's why. That makes sense. Now, did these here, so you have the Nephilim. They're destroyed in the flood, and the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim who died in the flood are what the New Testament calls demons. That's demons. And that's why demons always what? Want a body. Because they used to have a body. They always want a body. Angels don't want a body. Demons are always looking for a body. Remember that one time that Jesus cast a lot of demons out of this dude, and they said, send us over to those pigs. Give us any body. We just want to be in a body. And then they ran off the cliff. So God has two families, earthly family made up of redeemed human beings and a heavenly family comprised of supernatural beings called the sons of God, more commonly angels, some elect and good, others fallen and evil. Now, the word angel, you have to realize, means messenger. And it's only one category of this family of supernatural beings. Angel describes a function. It means a messenger. But not all supernatural beings are messengers. There's other categories of these beings, like the seraphim in Isaiah 6 that were around the throne. They weren't messengers. 
And, the, and then the four living creatures described throughout Revelation. They weren't messengers. And then you have these princes and chief princes in our passage, like Michael. And, and one of them is so glorious, his eyes are like flames of fire. And when he talks, it's like a multitude of many people. So there's all these beings, and all of them together are, are, in the cat, are in this family, heavenly sons of God. They're created beings. They're superior to us. But they, like us, are intimately involved in carrying out God's will on earth or resisting it. The good ones are not only involved in carrying out the actions of God, it seems that they're also very much involved in the decisions behind the actions. Now, when we went through the chapter, I went right over this part I'm going to show you right now because I didn't even want to deal with it back then. It's in, that, it's in the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has about the seven years that he's going to be turned into an animal until he admits that God is the most high, right? Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. Now look at this. The sentence is by the decree of God? No. By the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end, that the living may know the most high rules the kingdom of men. These sons of God, they're also called watchers here, are so involved in carrying out God's plan that in some places they're, they're referred to as God's divine counsel. Psalm 89, 7. In the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. And the divine counsel apparently has a meeting place in Daniel's vision in chapter 7. You'll remember, um, it's the vision about the four beasts. Daniel says in that vision, as I looked, thrones. Say thrones. That's plural, right? Yeah, thrones were set in place. In the ancient of days, who we determined was God the Father, took his seat. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. Okay, seated on the thrones. God sat, the Father sat. Who's all these other people sitting on thrones that's a part of this royal, holy, heavenly court? I'll tell you who, the sons of God. That's who. And there's also a ranking system among them. Lucifer was a son of God. He was one of the heavenly sons of God who was called the highest-ranking cherubim until he fell. And Job tells us even after he fell, he still appeared before God with the other sons of God. Job 1. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Verse, or chapter 2, there's the same verse just like that. You see, Lucifer is the first fallen member of the sons of God. We know how that happened, the Bible tells us. More sons of God fell in Genesis 6 by cohabiting with the daughters of men, and more sons of God fall sometime after the Tower of Babel. And it is this third sons of God rebellion that brings us to the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. They were a part of the third rebellion. All right. (sighs) 
you know, go look at that transcript this week, right? <laughs> You'll see. We'll get to this. We'll get it. Okay, what does this have to do with me? A lot. Hold on. All right. Everything, in fact. What we're trying to do again is what? Retain or recapture a supernatural worldview that we're not the only beings. And there's a lot going on besides what we can see in the world. Okay. Because mankind rebelled against God at Babel, God disinherited them, judged them by giving them over to be ruled by beings inferior to him, the sons of God. Meanwhile, he turned his attention to start a new people through Abraham, Israel, his inheritance. All right. So what happened to these sons of God that were placed over the 70 people groups or nations? Well, the answer, this is the last piece of the puzzle, is found in Psalm 82. Psalm 82 implies that these particular sons of God became corrupt too. They oppressed the people that were in the region over which they were assigned. They rebelled against God. God said, okay, I'm going to judge you one day. Psalm 82.1, God presides in the great assembly, the divine assembly or divine council. He renders judgment among the gods. Here's the sons of God. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. So here you have the sons of God. They're called sons of the Most High. They're called rulers. And God says, you're going to die like mere mortals, which means they are what? Not mere mortals. These are not human kings right here. They are supernatural beings. And the Lord says one day, because of their iniquity, he is going to judge them. Isaiah 24, in that day, the Lord will punish the powers in heaven above and kings on the earth below, both. So what we have here is the sons of God keep falling. Lucifer falls, right? And then the sons of God in Genesis 6 fall. And then we have these sons of God from, from Genesis 11 falling. And you might ask at this point, does God, can God ever have any sons that will not fall? Yes. <laughs> We happen to all be gathered here this morning because of that. Yes, he can, but only through a sonship that cannot fail. And we have that sonship in the ultimate superior, one and only son, Jesus Christ, who cannot fail. Our sonship is not based upon our activity, our righteousness, it's based on another who is perfect. His name is Jesus. And that's why in Galatians 3.26 it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And you cannot fall, as Jude says, because he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Your future is secure. And you want to know something else? It's very glorious too. There's glory to come because in the kingdom to come, the rulership of the fallen heavenly sons of God will be given to the redeemed earthly sons of God. Second Timothy says it. If we endure, we will also what? Amen. Revelation 5, you've made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will Amen. on the earth. 1 Corinthians 3 adds this, that we're even going to rule over the holy, heavenly sons of God. Wow. Though they are superior to us in so many ways, 
they will never have the highest privilege and rank of being redeemed and made sons of God through the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. That's the highest ranking, the redeemed. Not the perfect, the redeemed. Galatians says as much, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Romans 8 tells us the whole creation is waiting for the final and full revelation of the sons of God. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You would be shocked at what you will one day be. You might even fall down and start worshiping. The glory of Christ will be shared with us, Romans chapter 8. Your future is unbelievable. Now, we're, we're rounding the corner. We just rounded it. I can see the finish line, I promise you. All right? In the Greek translation of Daniel, in the Septuagint, that's called, the word prince, prince of Persia, prince of Greece, is from the same root word that Paul uses to describe fallen sons of God, guess where, in Ephesians 6. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the same word, princes. That's the exact same word that's used for prince of Persia, prince of Greece, right there. That's a supernatural, malevolent power. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the, the rulers, the princes, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And that means that these prince rulers, they're not only over Persia and Greece, they're over all the nations. And, and what they did over Persia and Greece is what they do over all nations. And they operate from the heavenly realm around the earth, the atmosphere. Chief among them now is Lucifer, who is called, Ephesians 2.2, the prince of the power of the air. Prince of Persia, prince of Greece, over them all, prince of the power of the air, Satan. So when Paul says now that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, he's not suggesting that we don't struggle with any natural flesh and blood evil, the evil we can see. He is saying that ultimately behind or working in concert with natural human evil is supernatural evil. The spiritual forces of evil where? In the heavenly realms. The natural human evils of war, exploitation, greed, strife, racism, abortion, sex trafficking, crime, murder. There are more than merely human and natural evil. Behind flesh and blood evil is something that's not flesh and blood. There is an evil being who along with his princes above and his demons on the earth, princes above, demons on the earth is at work in the human race rebelling against God and God's plan through these fallen heavenly, son, fallen sons of God. 
Now, until a person recognizes that, until a person sees this other realm, you will never be able to come to grips with the pervasiveness and the depth of evil in the human race. You just won't be able to come to an explanation. Your, your only other option is that human evils must find their origin in natural causes, and if so, then they should be able to be fixed through natural means, you know, science, education, legislation, government programs, psychology, etc. The glaring question, of course, is why has that not worked at all, and things are only getting worse and worse and worse and worse. They've always been getting worse and worse and worse and worse. I mean, eventually somebody should stay. What we're doing is not working. But they're blinded. If there is no God, and human beings are masters over their own destiny, why is the world in such a mess? Why can't we fix the evils of our society? Because behind human evil, is not only human sin, but also supernatural evil. Now, the good news of the gospel is that both supernatural evil and human sin are overcome in the cross of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, here it is. When you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He did what? Forgave all our sins through the cross, right? And how did he do that? Well, he canceled out the charge of our legal indebtedness that stood against us and condemned us. What was that? God's law. We broke God's law. Therefore, we're guilty before God. We owe God righteousness. We can't give it to him. And so we're in debt. We have this huge IOU. Jesus took that IOU, nailed it to the cross. Sins forgiven, past, present, and future, okay? And then notice this. This is through the cross too. And having disarmed the powers, RK, the princes, having disarmed those, same guys that we're talking about here, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, where was that public spectacle made? Not in our realm, in the other realm. There was a victory parade in the other realm. One day, we'll be a part of that victory parade. You say, if he's disarmed them, why are they still operative today? Well, the full disarmament will be at the second coming. The price has been paid. It's as good as done, though. And when Christ returns, it'll all be taken care of. He's doing the wipe-up. We're on the mission. He's going to come in and, and do the wipe-up at the end. It's kind of like if you're familiar with World War II. There's D-Day and there's V-Day. D-Day, right, when the Allies invaded at Normandy and pushed down through northern France, the war was as good as done at that point. There was the mopping up all the way to, and it was a hard fight, but at that point, the back of Hitler was broken. The back of Germany was broken at that point, and as they moved through France and on into Germany until, until what? V, Victory Day. So there was D-Day and V-Day. Now D-Day, that's the cross. It's as good as done. V-Day is when Christ returns and does the wipe up. Everything's cleaned up. Everything's new. We go into a new heaven and a new earth. So the price has been paid, and in the interim, we have been given authority... over supernatural beings 
in the name of Jesus. And every time we share the gospel, every time we pray with somebody in Jesus' name, every time we offer assistance to somebody in Jesus' name, every time we do anything in Jesus' name, we're engaging in spiritual warfare with principalities and powers. See, every time you share the gospel, Ephesians tells us, Ephesians 3.10, it says in 3.10 that every time we share the gospel, we make known the manifold wisdom of God to who? The rulers, the arche, the princes, and the authorities in heavenly realms. What, do we, what does that mean? Every time you preach the gospel, you're reminding the princes that their end is coming. You're taking the D-Day and you're rubbing it in their face and saying, V-Day is coming in Jesus' name. Every time. A lot of times people think of spiritual warfare as only something that you do in prayer. Look at the greatest spiritual warfare that anybody could do is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody. And that's what we're left to do. And knowing what's going on in the realm we can't see kind of changes the way we look at that mission, does it not? It changes the way we look at it. We're not the only thing here. We're not the only cause and effect. There are beings in the unseen realm that are working against us and working for us. But we have the ultimate weapon, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, Romans 1, is the power of God for the salvation of both the Jew and the Greek. For in the gospel, a way to be made right with God is revealed by faith in Jesus Christ. See, that's our problem. We're not right with God. We sin, we've fallen short, but God provides a way for us to be made right with him through his son. He went to the cross. He died the death we should have died. He took the penalty we deserve for our sin. Not only that, he lived the life we should have lived but couldn't. He lived perfectly. He obeyed the law of God. And when we believe in him, not only are our sins forgiven, but his record of his perfectly lived life is given to us. We are made righteous in Christ Jesus. That happens the moment you believe the gospel. You've never believed it this morning? Man, what a morning. I can hear the testimony. You know, the Sunday I got saved, they were talking about all the sons of God stuff. It was wild, but then he came to this part at the end, and it made sense. I need to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. If you've never done that this morning, I want to lead you in a confession right now to do that. And this morning, let's bow our heads. And I'd like everyone to join me in this. This is something we, we confess when we first come to Christ and we keep on confessing it because it keeps on being true. I believe in Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for my sin and that he rose from the dead to make me right with God. I believe in him and what he did for me and therefore, I'm a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Hallelujah.